This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and once again, thank you so much for joining with me. It's Sunday, February the 18th, 2023, and I encourage you, if you don't have it, go get your Bible. Maybe print off the notes that I have on the website as we look at an absolutely powerful and incredible passage of Scripture. Of course, that's true of all Scripture, but this passage is just so relevant to how we actually live this thing called the Christian life. And so, um, again, be ready. Let's jump into this together as we now conclude Colossians chapter 2. So let me start by asking you a question that on its surface may just sound ridiculous. What is the point of Christianity? You know, over the years, I've come to believe through some wonderful teachers in my own life that one of the best answers to that question is, well, it is to glorify God, to reveal the goodness and grace of God to the creation of God through our lives as God's people, both as individuals and more importantly, through our lives collectively as a community of the people of God, as the church. Okay, right? But with that there, What is the point of Christianity in terms of what God has done for his creation, for humanity, for you and me? Now, to that question, there could be many answers. Maybe one of the first that would come to your mind is, well, forgiveness. Even more, that through faith in Christ, a person receives new life, is restored into the life of God and rightness with God. And that is true. And one of the greatest expressions of that new life, my friends, is that right now in this life that we will be people of hope. In Romans 15, Paul looks back to Isaiah's prophecy of what the Christ would mean for the Gentiles, right? To extend that thought, meaning to all humanity. And in Romans 15, verses 12 through 14, we read this. Paul says, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. And then Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're just going on in this thought. Paul's opening prayer for the church in Ephesus is that the believers would know this hope that is theirs in Christ. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, may be opened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. You know, the writer of Hebrews, having already said much about the new hope that is ours through the new covenant that Christ brought into being by his death and resurrection, The writer then encourages the church not to lose sight of this great hope. When in Hebrews 23, we read, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Friends, my point with all of this is that hope has a consequence. Because we are people of hope, we should see life through a different lens a lens of faith in what is now true of us in Christ. Now, think about this consequence. This hope changes 
the way that we see death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about our hope of resurrection when he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. For where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And church, our hope in Christ also changes the way we see and experience life. In fact, a strong New Testament case can be made that the point of being a Christian has more to do with life right now than our future life in heaven. And if that statement kind of rocked you a bit, I want you to think about it. Because this is not to diminish the believer's hope of eternity, but rather it is to elevate biblically our hope of Christ's presence today in the midst of life as it really is. You see, one of the great expressions of our hope today is the freedom that we have received from what Paul viewed as one of the greatest threats to the believer's experience of God's goodness and God's grace. And this is freedom that we have from the threat, in fact, the great heresy of legalism. And this brings us to our text today, as, as I said, as we complete Colossians chapter 2. Now, if you missed last Sunday, you really need to go back and listen to it, or just read my raw message notes. It's all there on the website. Friends, because our text today is an inseparable continuation of what we heard Paul say last week. So last week, we talked about the very human and often very religious temptation towards rules and regulations. Why this is. We heard Paul warn the church not to be judged, not to have their vitality and genuineness of their life in Christ damaged by those who would judge them based upon their religious performance and whether their, their worship included these elite, super-emotional and mystical spiritual experiences. Just, I'm just going to reread the text. This is what we read, starting in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. For these are but a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and its sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. That's such an important passage. But now we take the next step as Paul demonstrates why legalism is not just ineffective, it's dangerous. He reminds us because the old person we used to be died with Christ, we are now dead to being dead. Going on now in Colossians 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? 
Now, this concept here that we died with Christ, friends, is absolutely essential to understanding our hope in Christ. And we're really going to unpack that next week. But for now, a few important things here. First of all, the concept of dying with Christ is really the same that we see in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Right? We see it in many places. But there, um, there's the idea that in Christ, we are a new creation, for the old has gone and the new has come. Think with me of the image here that Paul paints. The old has gone because when a person dies, they are released from their former status or their former burdens. I mean, if a sick person dies, they are no longer bound to that disease. If an imprisoned person dies, the prison no longer holds them. If an, if an indebted person dies, their debts no longer have meaning. Now, of course, that's only good news for the dead person if they don't stay dead, which is why the Christian hope is not only that we died to the old, but we have been raised with Christ to what is new, which, of course, is our new life in Christ. The point is that the systems of oppression that used to hold us captive, do so no longer. Because when we died to that old life, we came out from under the old principles and spiritual forces of this world. The CEV, the Contemporary English Version, I really hardly ever use that translation, but here, its rendering of this text really gets close to it. And it sounds like a line written for a Marvel movie. It says, You died with Christ. So the forces of the universe don't have any power over you. And then going all Paul, ex- Paul exclaims, So why, as though you still belonged to the world, as though you were still imprisoned and under the power of these forces, why do you still submit to all their rules? And friends, here Paul gives us a key insight. Religious rules, legalistic thinking, these are not a tool used by God to bring change and transformation into our lives. Rather, religious laws and legalism are a tool of the enemies of God to distance us from God. And as we continue, you can almost hear Paul throwing his hands up in the air in exasperation as he says, Why do you submit to their rules? Verse 21 Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, before we go on, we need to clarify what Paul means by do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, by not being bogged down by rules. We may say this, no rules, or rather, really, Paul, no rules? Because, friends, we don't want to make this text say something it doesn't mean. So, first, yes, Paul here, in strong language, is condemning rule-based motivation and religious legalism. But when he says, don't submit to their rules, of course, he isn't suggesting that there's no such thing as right and wrong or a morality inherent to a life that is obedient to God's nature and character. It would be a gross distortion of this text to say, hey, Paul says don't submit to rules, so that means I can do anything I want. Of course, that's not what he's saying. But in contrast, the point here is twofold. 
First, Paul is rejecting the notion of religious law as a strategy, as an approach to being right with God or experiencing true change and transformation. See, this is the strategy where I would say, the reason I don't steal is because the law tells me not to steal. I mean, otherwise, I'd be a happy thief. (laughs) Or to flip that around, when we think we can change people's behavior just by telling them the rules, even if we add on to that incentives of punishment and reward. You know, over time, the strategy of law simply doesn't work. In fact, Scripture tells us that it's counterproductive. And of course, we see this demonstrated throughout Scripture and just through any basic observation of human human behavior and human dynamics. But second, we see here that when we do opt for the strategy of legalism, we inevitably will start to pile up every rule you could possibly conceive. And the result is simply suffocating. In fact, it's bondage. In the case of the Colossians, Paul sums up the rules that were being pushed by these false teachers as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch. Now, these very likely refer back to the laws of the Mosaic Covenant, which over the centuries had been piled upon with layer and layer of more rules and regulations. I mean, what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? Well, here's your long list of do's and don'ts to make sure you do it right. By the way, as a parenthesis here, Google, if you don't know this term, Google Erev. I think, I'm I'm sure I said that wrong, actually. Erev? Erev, I think that's right. E-R-U-V. Or Erev New York. That'll just give you an interesting insight into this. But before we get all self-righteous about our Orthodox Jewish friends, Guys, we have plenty examples of this in Christian culture. And just to be as personal as possible, let's look at Baptist or evangelical culture. In my first track's devotion email, by the way, if you don't get that, shoot me a note. I'll add you to my list. Anyway, this week I riffed on the comedian Jeff Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck um, routine. Talking about, you know, if you're comfortable saying something in the church parking lot that you wouldn't actually say in the church you might be a legalist. <laughs> you know, if happy people make you suspicious, you might be a legalist. If you lack joy and tell yourself it's because you're so holy, you just might be a legalist. But guys, here's a key one. If you elevate to the status of divine moral law, something the Bible simply doesn't require or prohibit, you might be a legalist. And friends, how do we do this? Because virtually every single Christian tradition out there does it. Now, again, in my Baptistic tradition that I grew up in, some of those big right, human laws that we elevated to the level of divine law, how about don't dance? Leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> in high school, what is just the battle our poor youth pastor just fought valiantly, but just to no, to no effect, was that we were not to listen to secular, secular music. We were not to listen to the evils of rock music. Well, I got to tell you, that didn't work. I used to just irritate my youth pastor by wearing all my rock concert t-shirts to youth group. How about don't play cards? Don't get tattoos? Here was the big one, right? Don't drink. Now, guys, hear me here. For many people, it is wonderful not to drink. 
Likewise, I may choose not to consume alcohol for health reasons or because of my relationships with other people. But the Bible simply does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol. And to look down upon people who do consume alcohol is exactly what Paul is writing against. Just another example, the church that where I met my wife in Charleston, South Carolina, um, the parking lot on the corner actually shared a parking lot with a local Mexican restaurant. It was wonderful. But I remember at one point there was all this drama because the deacon board decided, right, they de decreed that you could not have any official church lunch meeting um, or church gathering, any, any type of business over lunch at that restaurant. Because, of course, they served alcohol, chiefly margaritas. Even though every Sunday after church, that restaurant would be filled with people from the church, often including the deacons themselves. As in, examples of this, of this type of legalism can be a deep rabbit hole. But one of the many things I love about the Trinity Church, Trinity Church family, is that we generally don't carry this kind of baggage. But my friend, Scripture warns time and again, be on your guard, be self-aware, for legalism is one of the greatest joy-killing, life-robbing temptations the church will face. So don't be taken in. And now, going on, Paul lays out two of the big problems with the legalistic mindset, or you could say the legalistic heart set. And the first thing that he says is that all of these religious rules, they are just short-term solutions to temporary problems. Going on to verse 22, Paul says, These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, they're based on merely human commands and teaching. And friends, here we see an important insight. A fundamental problem with rule-based living is that our rules almost always address temporary things. They reduce the incredible power of the gospel just down to behavior. Now, of course, guys, behavior matters. A life centered in Christ will reflect the character and the nature of God. But ultimately, everything of this life is short-term. And so Paul proclaims, don't miss out on the true life-changing power of Christ's presence because you're obsessing over things that just aren't that important. And Paul goes on to say, these are based on mere human commands and teaching. You see, much of what can divide the church and has divided the church and can place us in legalistic bondage it really isn't the truth of Scripture, but it's rooted in the pride and the fear of human thinking. Let me give you just a few examples. And guys, let me just be honest with you here. I might offend you right now. I might poke on you right now. Um, but if I do, it is from a place of the sincerity of my own life experience, having been a part of the church that I deeply love for all of, all of my life. Anyway, going on. Philippians 4.8 talks about our choice of the focus of our minds. When Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that. 
right? Think about such things. Friends, that is a powerful passage. But human legalism says, you know, that's not quite clear enough. We need to spell out what is and isn't acceptable for Christians to read, to listen to, or to think about. So here's your banned book list. And in 1 Timothy, Paul speaks about women dressing modestly. And if you go look at that in, in context, there's an important context with a very important principle. But human legalism says, here's the description of what is and isn't acceptable for Christians to wear, for, for how Christians are to dress. And the list is probably different depending on whether or not you are inside the church. And then, again, being honest here, guys, if we, in many cases, we build this list for women, but we ignore it for men. And if we see a guy falling into lust, we tend to blame it on how the woman is dressed, not on the heart of the man. This is just one more. Friends, in several places, Scripture speaks about the great tragedy of divorce. This is, again, an important principle contained within important biblical contexts. But human legalism takes this and just declares, if you've ever been divorced, it doesn't matter why, you are disqualified from ever serving in any role of spiritual leadership within the church. And friends, this isn't a thing in the Trinity church family, but it is very common within many conservative evangelical denominations including our own Southern Baptist denomination. You guys out there listening, you may not be Southern Baptist, but I've grown up in a Southern Baptist church and Trinity to this day, that's our denominational affiliation. But friends, then to make matters worse, human thinking, chiefly fueled by pride and fear, combined together with religious legalism, it will take these issues and use them to distance and to condemn. And I could go through examples there, but I'm just going to leave that be. Because you see, friends, many scholars think that when Paul wrote these words, right, when he says this is based on merely human commands and teaching, that he had in mind the teaching of Jesus that we see in Matthew chapter 15. If you go read that, that text, we see Jesus being accosted by the teachers of the law, because his disciples were playing fast and loose with the religious rules and traditions. I'm just going to sum up the conversation here, and it went something like this. Now, the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, for their teachings are merely human rules. Now, a little later, the disciples came to him and said, uh, Jesus, you know that the Pharisees were really offended by what you said. And Jesus replied, leave them, for they are blind guides. Wow. Church, may we never break the command of God to love, to be his people of goodness, 
kindness, compassion, patience, as we express to all people the nature of God's goodness and love, as we are bearers of the hope of Christ. May we never forsake God's heart for people for the sake of our own tradition, scruples, or human rules. And now Paul concludes his point by revealing, guys, what we already know to be true. And this is why legalism isn't just ineffective, it is dangerous. Verse 23, Paul says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Okay, friends, bottom line, legalism lies. Hear me. Friends, a legalistic heart appears to seek God's wisdom and guidance while really following their own human ways of thinking. A legalistic heart appears to care about worship when really our own experience is more important than our hearts before God. A legalistic heart appears to be humble in defending the faith, and yet our attitude towards people is based in fear and pride, not love and compassion. A legalistic heart creates rules restricting freedom, and yet internally ignores its own temptation and sin. And friends, that's Paul's final blow against the danger and the heresy of legalism. That all of these rules, when it comes down to it, they lack any power to actually change our heart. And by the way, when Paul says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, he's not just talking about lust, about sexual lust there, but about any sin, any sinful desire of our flesh, be it pride, anger, fear, bitterness, resentment, you name it. Law has no power to change our heart. And friends, this might be legalism's greatest danger, that rule-based living keeps our eyes turned from the one thing that does have the power to change our heart. And this is the stunning, revolutionary, countercultural, to some even offensive, amazing love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul began this section by saying, since you died with Christ, don't get sucked into all these old obsolete ways of thinking. And now, as we enter into chapter 3, Paul is going to turn to the miraculous alternative by saying, since then, you have been raised with Christ. So look to Him, for He is your source, He is your life, and He is good. And my friends, that is where we're going to go next week. Church, thank you so much for joining with me today. I love you, and I'll see you here again next Sunday.